Hey, Fall of a Titan fans. If you're looking for more sports meets true crime stories, we've got something we think you might like. My name is John Gonzalez, host of Sports Illustrated Weekly. On our podcast, we go deep into the most fascinating stories in sports like this one we're about to play. We'll be dropping some of our favorite true crime stories in this feed coming up. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Sports Illustrated Weekly, available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll also put a link in the description of this episode. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the story. The reality of it sets in when I'm at home. I need to give the boys baths. And then, oh, by the way, my best friend's not here. And their daddy's not here. It was like... Daddy went to work, and there was a bad man at Daddy's work, and that bad man had a gun. Last summer, a 46-year-old golf pro was murdered under mysterious circumstances. Gene Siller was shot on the 10th hole of the Pine Tree Country Club in Georgia. We had to turn Gene over to start CPR on him. It was a horrible, horrible thing to come up to. The depth of your love determines the depth of your grief. The depth of my love for him was so deep that I don't think I'll ever recover. The story made headlines at the time But no story has gone as deep as a new piece written by Brian Burnsed, a contributing writer for Sports Illustrated. In it, he digs into who Gene was, the random and unlikely set of events that nevertheless led to him being murdered in broad daylight, and the family Siller sadly left behind. All right, Brian, before we get into how and why Gene Siller was murdered, tell us about who he was. He was someone who devoted his life to his family and to the sport that he loved. He grew up in Northwest Cincinnati. He had two sisters, loved out the outdoors, loved playing golf. Once he was certified to be a head pro, he spent some time in Atlanta. He moved south. There's more courses you can play and work year round. He stopped at a couple courses uh, for more than a decade as an assistant pro. He had a brief head pro job that was just a real grind and didn't love it and wound up uh, leaving that job when that club got sold. No respect for him, no respect for his family. I mean, he was in at six and didn't home till like eight. I mean, they were, it was like borderline emotional abuse. By that point, he was already married to his wife, Ashley, and they had two boys. And he was kind of a stay-at-home dad for a time, and Ashley was supporting them, and they were in a really happy spot because he didn't have those 80-hour work weeks anymore. But she could tell there was a, a void in him. Something was missing. And he was fortunate enough to get a call from the uh, general manager at Pine Tree Country Club, which is in northwest Atlanta, a little town called Kennesaw in the suburbs, uh, someone who had interviewed him for a previous job. Brad Nykum called and said, hey, we need a head golf pro. Would you be interested? He had a good reputation and was smart and was a family man. I just knew he was competent. He couldn't resist. He needed to go back out and be outdoors, working with the sport he loved and applying an engineer's mind to improving the club for its members. 
And in your piece, the way you write about it and having talked to Ashley, it seemed like Gene really loved this job, right? It wasn't like some of the other ones that you said previously that he wasn't crazy about. This one he was really into. That's right. He he finally had found a place where he could scratch his professional itch and do what he loved, but it wasn't that long slog. It was good for their marriage. He was my amazing, big-hearted, hard-working husband again. They gave him two days off a week, even in the high season. He got Sundays and Mondays off. Uh, so he was able to play rounds of golf with the boys on the weekends, work around the house, keep the yard in shape for Ashley while she was at work on Mondays, really devote himself to his family and to his job simultaneously. We were so grateful to be together as a family. Like our marriage just like flourished the last two years. It was just, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty damn close. So things are going well at home. They're going well at work. But then we go back to last summer. Tell us, Brian, about what happened on July 3rd. I'll take you back one day before that, July 2nd. Gene and Ashley and the boys were driving back from a beach vacation they'd had with Gene's family, his parents, his sisters, their spouses and kids. Big, happy family gathering. They'd done one every year, but COVID had delayed it for a couple of years. So this was the, their first one in a while. And it was just a really happy week. All of them reunited, everyone was happy. I specifically remember saying, like, God, life's so good. Like, we were like, life is so good. Our kids are healthy. Like, we're doing all this cool stuff to our house or we're plans to. Gene and Ashley were talking about July the 3rd. Gene still had off after that vacation, but it was a big day at the club. July 3rd was that Saturday, so they were going to have their July 4th celebration there and the fireworks and the cookout and all that. And Gene had a handful of younger staffers he knew that would be there that day and knew it would be busy and felt kind of guilty. You know, I've been gone. I want to go there and help him and be there for him. That was just who he was. He's like, are you, are you cool with that? I said, yeah, just we're going to the fireworks. Please be home by 630. He said, of course, of course, that's what I'll do. So he got up that morning and was dressed up, dressed to the nines as always in his golf attire. He had on red pants and an American flag shirt. And Ashley told me over and over how handsome she thought he looked that day. I remember making making breakfast for the boys and they're up and they're in their PJs. And he comes down and he has like these bright red pants on. We called him Mr. Fancy Pants. We're like, oh, look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants. And off to work he went, strolled in at nine, and uh, seemed to be having just a normal day. And then a white pickup truck showed up on the 10th, 10th green that day. So why was there a white pickup truck on the green? And what happened afterwards? The court case is ongoing, but in general terms, is that two men are alleged to have abducted two others that were in the back of that truck. They were bound with duct tape and zip ties. It's alleged by some people that we spoke with to have, have been tied to the drug trade. A few of the people that are said to be involved have had criminal histories in the drug trade. They have these men tied up in the back of the truck. They drive somewhere around 40 miles from where they're alleged to have kidnapped them. And they wind up on a street, it's a dead end street that is bisected by the cart path that runs from Pine Tree's 10th green to its 11th tee. And you can easily jump onto the course from that street. When you're looking down 
all you really see is a lake. So it appeared, again, this is all alleged, that the men were looking to murder these two men in the back and dispose of the bodies in the lake. So they were uh, alleged to have killed the two men in the back, Paul Pearson and Henry Valdez, shot them there at the site, and then tried to, it appeared at least, one of the men had pulled the trigger, had tried to maroon the truck, hide the evidence. That's at least what it appeared was happening. But there's two bunkers that guard the right side of the green, and one of that front bunker caught the truck the front wheels came up, couldn't go anywhere. And so now you look out and there's a truck stuck out on that 10th green in the middle of the day, 2 p.m. on a Saturday, July 3rd at a busy golf course. So Gene looks out, middle of the day, busy golf course, sees this truck, what happens? One of his assistant pros, Harrison Bryant, was in the pro shop that day and it's got a big expansive view out to the driving range and the 10th green is visible from the clubhouse and he saw it. He couldn't tell what was going on, answered a call, then saw it really actually out on the course from where it had been and then told Gene about it. And Gene said, okay, I'll go investigate. Oftentimes, a lot of people I talked to at the club, they said, you know, that happens in golf Well, you'll have, you know, maybe there's kids out there on the course or, you know, teenagers up to no good. My other thought was somebody could have had seizure, heart attack, or somebody got super drunk early on the 4th of July weekend. You don't assume it's something nefarious, but you got to go talk to him, get him out, even offer help. They thought in this case, someone must have had a car accident and broken down, or that's the logical explanation in a scenario like that. So Gene hops in a golf cart, drives up the cart path that straddles the left side of the 10th fairway, and then gets to the green. And that's where the alleged shooter, Brian Roden, is alleged to to have shot him twice and killed him instantly. So Gene wasn't even supposed to be there that day. He goes in to do a good deed to help his younger staffers. He sees the truck. He's murdered. What happens to the assailants? One was only alleged to be involved in the kidnappings, Justin Pruitt. The other, who's the alleged murderer, Brian Roden, was 23 at the time, a former Metro Atlanta high school football player who'd had quite a few run-ins with the law, drug-related offenses. He's alleged to have darted off into the woods. A few of the members saw the perpetrator run away, leaving the truck literally idling on the green with Gene up there. People on the range heard the gunshots. People are scrambling. And then one of the members comes running in and tells me I need to call 911 because shots were fired and they thought Gene was hurt. Few other members, one of whom was a nurse, hop in golf carts to drive up to try to help Gene because they can see he's lying prone. People on the driving range said, uh, he's been shot, he's hurt. They went up there to try to help him to administer CPR. We found him on the ground and then we rolled him over and started CPR him until the police got there. Through her training and her years, she knew that, that, that Gene was gone, but she still tried in vain to save him. Brian, before we continue on and get to Gene and his family in the aftermath, I'm curious about what happened to Roden. Was he caught? And then also what happened to his accomplice? It's quite a winding story. He was actually, much later that night, he was arrested for DUI. He had not yet been tied to the murders. He was arrested, booked, held for a day or two, eventually let go, and they confiscated in that arrest. They pulled him over because he had 
broken taillight. He had a bunch of fake IDs on him. He had a backpack full of cash. They confiscated the cash. And then once authorities had tied him to the murders, they lured him back to the police station to arrest him for the murders under the guise of returning the cash they'd confiscated in the DUI. And what is his current situation? I mean, is the trial upcoming? How much time is he looking at? The trial's ongoing. It's in Cobb County. Jury trial is scheduled for the coming months. Prosecutors and investigators have been exceedingly tight-lipped about the particulars of the case, about the broader ties to any drug involvement or the drug trade. I couldn't get a peep out of them in trying to piece together what had happened at the scene beyond eyewitness accounts and police documents. So a lot more is going to come out of the trial itself here in the coming months. So this is a tragic case of wrong place and wrong time for Gene Siller. And while it has all of these spectacular, very difficult to believe crime elements, it's not really a crime story that you wrote about. It's much more about Gene and his family and who he left behind. That was important to us in trying to tell that family story and the human story, because we know things like this can get sensationalized a lot. People love a a crime drama, but there's always a severe raw human impact in something like this, particularly when there's this sort of suddenness and this sort of violence. It was devastating. I've reported on quite a bit of tragic circumstances, people who've passed away. But I have to say that this one seemed more raw than pretty much anything I've reported on before because of the violent nature of it. And the family is still reeling. Ashley, we've stayed in in contact in the many months since I started reporting this, and she puts on a brave face. She's a corporate sales rep for AT&T, so she's good at putting the facade up, but she said she's just quietly devastated every day. It's just her and the boys. It's almost like the the reality of it sets in when I'm at home. I need to give the boys baths, and I need to put them to bed, and I need to pack their backpacks, and I need to clean up the house, and I need to do this and this and this, and and then, oh, by the way, my best friend's not here. And their daddy's not here. She does have a massive support at home from her her extended family. They all live around the Atlanta metro area and they're there for her. Her mom has been someone to lean on. But just the little moments along the way are what we wanted to capture that are just so brutal. How do you break the news to the two little boys the next day? You cannot lie to them. Kids need answers. They have to trust you, which means you have to tell them. Right. It was like, daddy went to work and there was a bad man at daddy's work and that bad man had a gun and that bad man shot daddy with his gun. And daddy died and we're not going to see him again, but don't worry because that bad guy is going to jail forever. Their faces were like, Oh, I would have done anything to take the pain away from them. It was, Banks was just confused, like, wait, what? Daddy? You know, and then Bo just, I mean, he was devastated. So to watch them and their pain was just like, it was like almost as bad as Having it happen again. And then you have Gene's parents in Ohio. That's one of the hardest phone calls I've ever done. And I've done thousands of interviews, and that was one of the hardest, if not the hardest, because they were there in their mid-70s. 
living room floor and start praying. Uh, Our Father. (laughs) So as a mother, you know, you want to tell him you love him and hug him and kiss him, you know. But we didn't have that uh, privilege at all. The sentiments they expressed were we've been lucky to have this life that we've had to raise successful children. They're all happy. They're all healthy. They just said they just don't know if they'll ever look at the world the same. They don't know if they'll ever recover. I didn't think I could even get out of bed. I just, you know, it's just was, well, they say that, you know, the depth of your love determines the depth of your grief. Right. And there's just, no way that the depth of my love for him was so deep that I don't think I'll ever recover. I can guess at the answer here, but what does Ashley have to say about Brian Roden? She doesn't let it dwell. She tries not to let it fester, but it's inevitable. I mean, can you imagine if you were in that spot, what you'd feel towards the person who's accused of doing that to your life and to your boys? I think he's a terrible, disgusting excuse for a human. I don't hate anybody, and I loathe him with every ounce of my soul. (laughs) A month after Gene was murdered, Pine Tree held a memorial tournament in Gene's honor, and there were a lot of golf luminaries who were involved. Tell us about that event. It was called the Gene Siller Red Pants Memorial Tournament because he was wearing those red pants that day and was known for dressing flashily and stocking the pro shop with flashy clothes. So they tried to honor that. And it was a fundraiser. People paid via donations to the Gene Siller Memorial Grant, which Ashley has started to honor Gene and help young junior golfers in the state of Georgia. That's going to be his lasting legacy and something they're trying to help perpetuate his memory. And quite a few PGA players, professionals donated Signed items, signed bags. We had Hideki Matsuyama donating things. There were items from Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau. There were a ton that heard about this. That day alone, they raised more than $200,000, and the foundation donations have far eclipsed that in the month since. But it was a, it was a chance for Ashley to address the club and the crowd, a lot of local PGA head pros, not guys you see on tour, but guys like Gene, who are head pro at club. They all came. He has lots of friends, very, very close friends who came and played. One of his close friends played with his clubs that day and really struggled on the 10th hole. I get on the 10th hole and I can't even pull it back. I can't, can't play the holes. So before the funeral, which was about a week or so after the murder, Ashley and her closest friends, they went out to the 10th green. So a makeshift memorial had popped up. Either people that knew him or club members or complete strangers had come and left flowers and cards and at the spot just in front of the 10th green where where Gene had been killed. It was like flowers and golf balls and, you know, we RIP Mr. Gene, like just the most beautiful, thoughtful Mm -hmm. memorial. And Ashley went and brought a pair of drawings that Bowen Banks had drawn the day after Gene's death. And she laid them out on the memorial. Bo's drawing is... And it's particularly heartbreaking. It's of Gene in red pants fighting off the assailant. And it says, Daddy, my hero at the top. And shows him standing up triumphantly and the, the assailant felled on the ground. 
And actually, they, they placed him on the ground, they sat and they cried, and, they, and then a dragonfly came. And it lands, right? And out of all the golf balls, the, state, the memorial is like probably the size of this whole island, lands on the red pants. And we're like, everyone's like quiet. We're like, okay. Then hopped over to Banks' drawing and then came back and nestled on the red pants for a bit. And this happens a lot in grief where you, you probe for signs and signals. Dragonflies are, one of her friends mentioned, these are a symbol of rebirth in the Christian faith and in many other faiths. And Ashley clung to that. And, and many people that knew Jean and loved Jean and were scarred by this have clung to that notion. And now they look for dragonflies everywhere they go. And dragonflies are drawn to color. So maybe that's why it landed on the red pants. Or maybe it was Jean. To them, it doesn't matter because they needed that. And it means a lot to them. It's been weirdly healing right. and powerful. One story that Ashley's mom told me was that the boys went out to play nine holes one day at Ryan Joyce's club and a dragon, they noticed a dragonfly kind of hovering around him for nine holes that day. And uh, Banks came back and said, Nana, daddy watched me play. And that just ripped my heart out as a writer, just, and as a person, you know, just hearing that. And that's the goal with everyone in their circle is let's let these boys grow up seeing dragonflies, clearly a metaphor for remembering their father. Let's do all we can to preserve the memory of their dad for these boys going forward, and more broadly for people he knew and, and for young golfers, around, young golfers around the state via the foundation. You did a really good job with some very difficult subject matter. You can read his excellent, heartbreaking piece about Gene Siller's murder on SI.com. Brian Bird said, as always, thank you for this. Thanks so much. This special edition of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Cooper McKim. Our sound engineer was Isaac Lee. Our senior producer is Dan Bloom. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Please listen and subscribe to this week's all-new Sports Illustrated Weekly podcast. It's available in your feed right now.